Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. You know, just in time for the holiday season, Marty and I are both really excited to unveil uh, a new type of episode. This is called Composer's Corner. And the idea with these episodes is we will have composers on the podcast and a playlist of their music, and they will just discuss their process. We'll play the music typically in full and kind of discuss the origins, the influences, the context of the music, and a little bit about the composer's process, because I think it's a little bit of a different perspective than we get just from analyzing music. And for this first Composer's Corner, Marty and I wanted to share some of the music that we've created over the years for film projects, video games, and things of that nature as a way for maybe some of you to get to understand our voices as composers, because I definitely think that impacts our work here on Underscore. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, hopefully, if you've been listening along with us for a while, some of our personality and our feelings about music come across through the content on the podcast. But I think it's really valuable, at least I know from my perspective, getting to expose myself to the work of an artist tells me so much about who that person is. Right. So we've titled this episode, Composer's Corner, The Music of Underscore, because the first two pieces that we're going to listen to um, in their entirety and discuss today are sort of the two pieces of music that have served as the theme music, I guess you could say, for Underscore itself. One of them is a piece of music that Marty composed, and one of them is a piece of music that I composed. So uh, with that, we will sort of be switching back and forth, one of Marty's tracks, one of mine, and uh, hopefully it should just be a, a fun, eclectic mix of music today, and we hope you will enjoy all of this. Um, I believe that Every single piece of music that we're playing today is available somewhere online, either on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, YouTube. I think YouTube. that's true. Yeah. So, Marty, why don't you start off? Because the first piece of music that we're going to talk about today is the underscore theme song. Uh, this is a piece of music called What Danger that you composed a number of years ago. And when we started this podcast, I remember feeling very adamant that this needed to be the theme music of underscore because to me it, it captures so much about what I love about film music and I just think it's a, a wonderful piece of music. Well, thanks. And uh, yeah, this is a piece from 2012 and it wasn't written for any particular assignment. I was mostly trying to get my feet wet with really writing for a bigger virtual orchestra. You've probably heard the opening of this quite a few times if you listen to the podcast. This is What Danger.
That was What Danger, composed by Marty Brueggemann. And before we move on, there are a few things about that piece of music that I want to talk about, because just for those of you listening to the show, you might not know this. You do know that we are brothers, but there's actually quite a considerable age difference between Marty and myself. And we're sort of the uh, bookends of our uh, our yeah, siblings. Yeah, you are the oldest and I'm the youngest by by quite a fair margin. And when I sort of was coming into my own as a composer, you know, the teenage years, junior high, high school, that kind of a thing, uh, I found myself very inspired and influenced by the music that you were creating. And I remember when you started to work on this piece, it it just hit me so immediately. Uh, and I have very few experiences like that with a piece of music where the first time I hear it, I'm absolutely enthralled. And I really am, and I'm not exaggerating, I listened to this hundreds of times uh, when, when you finished it. I would listen to it again and again and again. I think I was so impressed with the production, especially at the time, I'd never heard virtual instrument music that sounded like this. But just the melody itself, uh, the kind of pure ya da 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 it's so pure it's so basic and that's something that i love about your music is that it's so melodically rich um but there are certain things that you're also sending up about the idiom of film music and i thought it was so cool that someone could do both of those things at the same time because it's not exactly a pastiche it's not it doesn't sound exactly like john williams or hans zimmer or james newton howard or any one composer in particular but it sounds like the music of cinema and it does have a wonderful rich melody that seems earnest and genuine to yourself oh well thanks so much man yeah that was a piece that was almost composed in sequence the order in which you hear the ideas was almost the order in which they were worked on. And I remember starting by, what if you did have this driving Hollywood ostinato, but it was a little bit more particular where it almost had kind of more of like a melodic identification. Right. It's less of just like arpeggiating a simple minor triad. Right. Um, Because that that opening line is so evocative. It does outline the Dorian mode and it sort of, I think it does a lot of foreshadowing to what the piece becomes ultimately. Yeah, that that ostinato is so fantastic. Gosh. Uh, And the production, it's it's funny, you did this back in 2012, but I still think it it holds up. I mean, I imagine if you did this now, uh, you probably have a a greater library of virtual instruments but there is a charm to this piece of music that i just i really wouldn't want you to touch anything about it i really think it is great and it's it's nice when you can listen back to something older and not feel like oh you know oh i've grown so much why did i do this why did i (laughs) do that it's fun when you can listen back to something that experience yeah yeah as composers that's kind of an eternal dilemma is you it seems like you only ever have a, a handful of pieces that you really feel confident with because then you move on and as you grow maybe you start to feel insecure about older things so it's nice to go back to something from the past and and, you know, be still proud of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, gosh, uh, speaking of being just knocked out by a piece of music, uh, the first time that you played, and this was, it was also in a kind of work in progress state, the first time you played this next piece to me, uh, my jaw just fell to the floor. Well, I think I played you a Sibelius because this is yeah. one that I, I orchestrated. Yeah, it was uh, definitely, it was definitely before first. you were programming any of the 
any of the virtual instruments. And I just thought it was so masterful, um, you know, driven by an incredibly appealing melody, but orchestrated so richly. And yeah, I think I had tears in my eyes when I, uh, I remember we were uh, sitting in the car when you first played me the finished produced version. There's a moment when this Mark tree comes in and there's this beautiful lyrical statement and <laughs> I just I just lost it. And I was so excited to use this piece of music for our real change episodes. That's where we take sort of a broader view on a particular concept in film music. We've talked about things like the ostinato and the tradition of cartoon music or the Lydian mode, which this piece, Serendipity, is a beautiful example of and really, a, I think, a great celebration of not just the Lydian mode, but the kind of magical Lydian mode that we see in, in film music. Right. Yeah, that definitely was something that I wanted to capture. I think if there was any composer in particular that I was trying to not emulate, but was very inspired John by. John Debney, right? Yeah, it would be yeah. John Debney, particularly a lot of the scores that he did in the 90s. You know, movies like Liar, Liar and Hocus Pocus, where it's that kind of beautiful, wistful Lydian symphonic sound and that's the sound of like a light movie comedy of that period and it's such a beautiful palette and it's something yeah. that I really miss and I think that's what I wanted to capture with serendipity I do think this piece has a lot of influence from John Williams and probably a lot of influence oh, from right, other yeah. video game composers that I'm a fan of I'm really happy with how this turned out I wrote this my sophomore year of college and there were a lot of really exciting opportunities that were kind of happening for me for the first time. And Serendipity was a piece that was almost a nice change of pace because it wasn't written, as you said, for any reason. It was just for me, almost as like a study. Like I wanted to really see... Because um, in college, you're doing a lot of growth and learning about orchestration right. and all, all manner of things. And I was studying a lot of scores. And it was almost one of those pieces where I had sort of a checklist of like, I've never done this before. I've never done this before. I've never done this before. I want to give it a shot. When it's also not and, the kind of yeah. assignment that you would typically get in kind of a college composing curriculum. Um, <laughs> sure. I'm sure you would. Yeah. You know, we work on fugues and maybe four part chorale or that sort of a thing or three-part counterpoint but sadly and i yeah, really wish this would john debney-esque yeah. old-fashioned orchestral thing is usually not an assignment though i wish it were well uh why don't we play serendipity as marty said this is sort of the theme music for our real change episodes and this is actually uh, one of the first tracks on an album that i released titled axiom which is available on my Bandcamp page. And we can have a link to all the music in the show notes. So let's take a listen to Serendipity. <laughs> Thank you. 
That was Serendipity from Will Brueggemann's album, Axiom. As we mentioned, there's a link to listen to and purchase the album on Bandcamp. Uh, It is just a sensational collection of orchestral music, all written by Will. Uh, We also featured another selection from Axiom as our play-in music today, uh, and it was also our play-out music on our Halloween episode. That's a piece called Obsidian which is also wonderfully delicious. But yeah, I cannot say enough about this piece, man. It's like, like you said, it, it still holds up so well. Um, but really on every front, I think the ideas are so strong. The orchestration is so inspired. The form of the piece as well. There's so much storytelling power in, in your decisions and where you take the material and, kind of how you keep the the energy of that material alive but when we have that sort of grand pause towards the middle of the piece and then the mark tree and solo piano uh take us away oh my gosh yeah it's still it just gets me <laughs> so well, much thanks. Every time. I, you know i really think for so much of my stuff and I, I imagine this is something we share but that we're almost each other's target audience. I know it's when I true. was absolutely a lot of times when I write music, I'm thinking about you know, oh, what would Marty really like? Um, or sometimes I, I used to have this thing where any time I felt that I came up with a good melody, I'm like, this sounds like a Marty melody. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that's the interesting thing. Form is something that I think does not come naturally to me, and I don't think sure. I'm the only composer that would say that. I think a lot of composers that tend to have a strong affinity for simple song-like melody sometimes struggle when writing uh, f- more full classical pieces because it's yeah, a very absolutely. different conception than like a sonata, allegro form, or even a rondo. But the thing to me is so much of my musical influences were always films and video games and songwriting, honestly, that for so much of my early orchestral music, and I'd even say a lot of stuff that I write to this day, the form is less about a specific musical form and more about how many different 
ways can I present this theme? Like a film, almost like sure. it's a very miniature suite of, let's say that melody, that was the main theme of some 90s movie. So at the beginning, you almost get the presentation that maybe you'd get in the opening scene when the kid's running home from school or right, something. Right. And you have the kind of fast tremolo strings. But then, you know, eventually that kind of wistful piano idea, maybe when someone's sleeping or, you know, you can kind of imagine a whole story. And the fun piece, the fun part about writing a piece of music divorced from a particular film is you get to make all of those decisions as a composer. And it was more about what could this melody do and what would it sound beautiful doing? And so that's, that's really my number one concern. I think people looking at it with a classical music lens might be critical about the sort of, that there are these multiple pauses and these distinctively different sections and that maybe the use of piano in the orchestra doesn't function in an acoustic way in the way that a, a piece of concert music would, but that wasn't really my goal for serendipity. My goal was to really send up a particular sound. And I love the sound of piano with the orchestra that you only get with recorded music, where you can turn the faders up on the piano and have it competing with this orchestral accompaniment without it having to really be, you know, fortissimo. That's a sound that I really love that kind of can only happen in film. So beautifully put. And again, Serendipity, as well as the entirety of Will's album Axiom, is available on Bandcamp. So next we're going to move on to uh, another piece by Marty, and this was written for a short film score uh, and for a festival that our friend Charlie McCarran puts on called the Minkino Film Score Fest. Uh, that he puts on every single summer in Minnesota. It's a wonderful festival. Fantastic composers and great filmmakers come together to produce short films and original scores that are accompanied by live orchestras, this sort of live chamber orchestra. It's a wonderful experience, and Marty composed a delightful score to a little stop-motion animated film titled My Favorite Forehead. Marty, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the style and sound of My Favorite Forehead musically? Yeah, absolutely. So this was for the 2017 uh, Minkino Film Score Fest, and this was a film directed and animated, produced really entirely by John Aker, who has a really unique kind of stop-motion voice and vision, and we had kind of a similar vision for the score, which was uh, something older fashioned. I immediately was picturing some of the music of Leroy Shield from the Hal Roach, Laurel and Hardy shorts, some kind of 30s and 40s, sweet sort of nostalgic material running throughout. And then also Carl Stalling and all of the great uh, cartoon composers, you know, for Warners and and Disney, and uh, was really inspired by the particular instrumentation of this chamber orchestra. It's really unique what uh, Charlie's put together. Well, it was we, almost perfect for this kind of score. It really was. Because uh, when you we think about the war, Hal Roach yeah. ensembles, it is this chamber orchestra, very dry, limited strings, you know, but with this quirky complement of almost jazz big band instruments as well. Yeah. I had such an enjoyable time working on the piece and, and orchestrating it. And it was uh, conducted by Yuri Ivan, who then afterwards asked for me to orchestrate a version for a full orchestra for the Linden Hills 
orchestra, which he conducts in Minneapolis. And that was a real treat too. But in many ways, my favorite version of my favorite forehead is what was performed at the festival with the wonderful Composer Quest Chamber Orchestra. Well, let's take a listen to Marty's score for My Favorite Forehead. Thank you. 
gosh, that is just delightful. My favorite forehead composed by Marty Brueggemann for John Aker's film of the same name. Marty, uh, I so love this score. And to me, what's so fantastic about it is it, it is a pastiche. It is sending up an era, but it's also so very you. It's an era that I know <laughs> oh, holds a lot of affinity uh, for you. And it puts me in mind of a lot of the great songwriters of the day, you know, like Harold Arlen or Frank Absolutely. Lesser, people yeah. like that, uh, that I know have played a big impact on you as a, a songwriter as well as a composer. Uh, I wanted to mention that Marty wrote an original musical titled Fireflower. That was kind of a, a, this project that a lot of our family was actually involved yeah. in putting together, um, but it was kind of like an original video game musical. And uh, that show, as well as other songs that I've heard you write over the years, have that old-fashioned 1930s, 40s sound. I think that's an era that both you and I are um, quite taken by. And what I love about my favorite forehead is it's not a pastiche in a way where it's making fun of an era. It's really celebrating what's beautiful about it that that last portion that we heard where it sort of changed uh, that that plays over the film's credits Um, but my favorite thing I think actually about this whole score in addition to the wonderful melodies and the really whimsical and on-the-nose orchestration is just that opening uh, with the kind of (laughs) trilling flutes and it's very Wizard of Oz has that kind of MGM logo. That uh, that that grand version of the sort of Glinda theme over the MGM lion, or like a great Mikos Roja kind of sound. But the orchestra just played. I was sitting next to you. I was just I was just thrilled with how they sounded. Well, I remember sitting next to you um, when this score was played and performed, and I just yeah, that really that part really put a, a smile on my face. And this is a kind of score too that I remember being impressed with because I think it takes a lot of confidence to write something like this for real musicians. I think so many of us are trained and used to using our virtual tools to create music that sounds good. Sure. You know, sure. modern composers they don't seem to have a lot of confidence in their writing they have to listen to the playback and they get their virtual instruments loaded and if it sounds good there then they'll commit to it but a score like this it's utilizing the actual acoustic properties of these instruments in a really old-fashioned way and I think the confidence to do that especially you wrote all this music on Sibelius it wasn't about creating good instrument samples it was about you know writing notated music for players and I know just personally that experience is so different uh, as a composer that I I, that was something I remember being very impressed with because it was the kind of thing if you play this for someone on Sibelius they might not you know seem too impressed but you show this film with the score to a live audience they were cheering they were laughing it was really kind of the bell of the ball that year (laughs) yeah you bring up such a such a good point about um sometimes those orchestration combinations that really sound the best live don't represent themselves very well in kind of mock-up stages, whether it's in your finale or Sibelius, or even if uh, you put a lot of time into to virtual instruments. And these days, I would say sometimes it almost requires a little bit of faith, but it's so rewarding to to see those things through. We're next going to listen to a piece from Will's award-winning score to a brand new staging of Antigone. 
this was a play staged at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and Will was commissioned to write original music that would accompany this play. And it was a very unique concept for how they were reinterpreting the material. And it included at the beginning and ending of the play, this sort of media montage that was, yeah, really striking and really evocative. But Will wrote music not only for these kind of pre-constructed media montages, but also music that would play us in and out of scenes of the play. And it was really such a great experience to see this play live and feel almost like there was this Hollywood orchestra accompanying these really strong performances. Yeah, it was it was such a delight to work on. And I actually spent like a year and a half working on Antigone, which, you know, it's funny if you listen to the soundtrack that I put up on my band camp, it's like 15 minutes long. So it's like, why would it take that <laughs> it's long? It's always the way it goes uh, somehow. But it, I, I think it, it ended up being a very difficult process because I met with the director before she even had a play chosen, but she knew they wanted to do a Greek tragedy and some kind of bold thing to make it feel relevant and resonate with people of all ages and not just feel stodgy and dead. So uh, as soon as I found out they were doing Antigone, I read through the translation that they were doing and I've been developing themes for a, a long time. And then when they actually started rehearsing, I would attend rehearsals and uh, was working with the video editor on the music for the beginning and ending. And it was just a wonderful experience experience. It has its own unique challenges. A lot of the music had to be these short little cues uh, to be timed to specific lines and character entrances and exits and that kind of a thing. But I felt good about how it all worked together, and it was a really marvelous experience. And it's always wonderful to be awarded or recognized for work that you did. So the piece that I'm actually going to play is not from the show itself, because as I mentioned, a lot of the music was only these little bursts. I had a lot of character themes and ideas, but you know they might get a 15-second presentation here or a 30-second presentation here, but not really a full-spun presentation of a theme. And I wrote this kind of, I don't know, I think romantic and heroic theme for the principal character Antigone. I went back and created almost a, a concert version of Antigone's theme, and that's what I'm going to play for you today. And it features the main theme to Antigone as well as one of the other central motives of the score, which is this very simple fanfare of death that kind of is alluded to a little bit here. So let's take a listen to Antigone's theme. <laughs> Thank you. 
My goodness, we were listening to Antigone's theme, the concert orchestra version, and this is from an upcoming suite that Will's composing from the material he wrote for the play Antigone. This, I believe, is the second movement of that suite, and when that's finished, that will be available for purchase at his website, williambmusic.com. Yeah, the soundtrack is already available, and it actually features this rendition as Antigone's theme. But yeah, I'm making a suite of five or six movements just to sort of develop some of the music from the the play. I feel almost like a duty to finish that just because I, I am proud of that music and I want it to exist in the world in a way that it can actually be performed by other orchestras. Well, I cannot wait to hear this performed live. You know, I marvel at this in the same way that I marvel at a John Williams theme suite where it's not only a matter of there being a really strong character-specific melody, which we have here. But once again, the form of the piece is just so strong. There's so much storytelling power and the great sense of moving the energy from one section of the orchestra to another, and also from one kind of ensemble configuration to another. I love the opening of this dark explosion that then ends up setting this very peaceful tableau for her theme. And I know I told you when you first sent me the score that that jig in the center of the movement is just ah, so appealing. And I feel like you've wrung every kind of ounce of potential out of the orchestra here. It's just well, it's so grand. Uh, that, that jig section that you mentioned, um, it almost has like a Stravinsky firebird oh, sure. quality to it. I'm very drawn to those kinds of harmonies that are almost like these pantonal clusters where it's almost like suspended chord harmony planing. But just as I was kind of developing the theme, I wanted to capture, there's this music uh, when Antigone is first brought in before the king, and it starts with this pizzicato idea. I was evoking that motive actually a little bit in that section and I just sure. I um, I felt like I was getting kind a little of exhausted <laughs> of hearing yeah I was getting you know a section b section a section and it needed some little additional material to be developed so that, that's sort of well, how and I it's came a subtle thing but I love the wood block uh, during that section it's it's really effective. So the combination <laughs> of that kind of pantonal cluster that you're talking about with the tonal characteristic of the woodblock, it's such a great match. I, I really like woodblock, and I like it doing just steady. I think part of it, Unsibelius, the metronome, is a woodblock. <laughs> so sure. I've, I've noticed there have been several pieces where I'll just have this kind of quarter note woodblock thing, and I, it's just it must like, be the Sibelius yeah. metronome in the back of my head. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. So next we're going to move on to another piece of Marty's. Uh, this is a piece called Shadows, and it was for a uh, television theme originally. Marty, do you want to talk a little bit about this piece of music that people are going to hear? This is one of my favorites of yours. Oh, thanks. Yes, it was shortly after uh, I had been hired by this music library and in the UK, this pitch offer came through for this television drama, this Iranian-produced show that was actually 
this kind of like film noir, really romantic thing. And I had gotten a storyboard, sort of animatic of what would be the opening titles and was working with the music supervisor there. Uh, it was really exciting at the time. There was, you know, some challenges with communication and translation. I end up featuring very heavily this uh, solo cello in the main theme. And as it turned out, the producing team was interested in anything but the cello <laughs> for this pitch. So that might have been one of the elements that kind of got in the way. But I was so thrilled with how this ultimately came together and really happy to be able to share it. This is my demo for that theme, which I call Shadows. Shadows, composed by Marty Brueggemann, featuring that solo cello that he was noting. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the melody of this, because that really is the the true hero of this piece of music. I think the, the production and the overall conception, what I love about it, uh, it, it is this kind of film noir sound, I, I suppose, in terms of how evocative everything is. Uh, but it to me, it's almost like if a show like Sherlock or Downton Abbey or something sure. with this almost minimal modern piano and orchestra sound had a really sophisticated old-fashioned melody. And what this melody does, which some of your great melodies also do, is it's, it's so singable, it's so simple and memorable, but it's so adult and mature and it has this really painful sincerity to it. Uh, My favorite things about this melody are the parts that demonstrate the composer's craft. When writing a, a good melody, people often talk about, oh, it has to be simple. But it shouldn't be simple to write. It should be simple to listen to. <laughs> a composer like Chopin can write a piece that's really complex, but he could also write a piece that is very simple. But it's simplicity with purpose in the little details, the parts in it where you can see they're tightening the screws here or there. Those are the things sure. that I really admire in a piece of music. And there are certain things you do. Ya-da-da-da, ya-da-da. Da, 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 da. 
da. Like that's not an intuitive transformation. Um, sure. But it feels natural and effortless. And there are certain points where this melody sort of strays from just the expected or the inevitable. But it's so perfect, honestly. Uh, I, I really oh, love it. And gosh. I like how you sort of develop it throughout the sections, but you're still kind of committing to this modern TV theme, piano and orchestra sound. Yeah, I, I think it's great. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank, <laughs> thanks so much, dude. Yeah, I, I definitely was trying to go for some of what past guest John Lund did so wonderfully in the Downton Abbey series was trying to hopefully bridge a more driving ostinato centered kind of orchestration with something maybe more of the romantic era another note was that they were looking for something a little less classical sounding and sometimes in media music classical is a code for I've Good. heard, I, yeah, no, I've heard that coming <laughs> back from, from people that maybe don't like it, say a Williamsy kind of a thing yeah, or something that that's uh, overtly melodic or sophisticated, you or know, in pieces that might have overly you know, chromatic, overly sure, you yeah. know, contrapuntal or detailed harmony. I think a lot of people want you know four basic chords, simple triads, repetitive ostinati, and not really much melody to speak of, unless you count you know successive whole notes as a melody right uh but i i don't think there's anything to apologize for i mean this is something i almost want to take a stand for i don't think composers (laughs) should dumb down their music to the intellect of people who don't even appreciate music in general if film cannot have these kinds of beautiful melodies it loses an incredible percentage of what makes it a vital art form i really love your take on that and I am so excited to play this next piece. Uh, in some ways, this is hot off the presses. This is a piece that Will composed for the University of Minnesota Duluth as a television spot, as a as a commercial. And it features members of the orchestra, members of the music department. And luckily, the finished commercial is now available. We'll share a link to that on Facebook and the show notes. It was wonderfully produced, and Will had a hand in the production of the commercial as well as its centerpiece score. And this is a piece that he calls Discovery. Will, could you tell us a little bit about what motivated this particular piece? Yeah, well, it was a really fun idea. It was something I was happy to do. I wrote this my senior year of college and as a way to celebrate what is now my alma mater. And uh, I think one of the great things about going to school in Duluth, Minnesota, is you're right near Lake Superior. And the it's I, Duluth, I think, was voted like the best outdoor city in America. So it, it really, the, the outdoor, the scenery, the nature of it is something that is sort of inescapable. And the yeah. idea for this commercial was to feature orchestral members in various scenic locations around Duluth. So we had my friend Cassie playing double bass in this stream, and it was so beautiful. We had my friend Hunter playing trombone on top of a cliff. We had these trumpets in this pier in front of Lake Superior glockenspiel up on the mountain it was just it it was uh, all these picturesque ideas that were really fun we had a great time putting it together and the nice thing is is that this video doesn't feature any kind of 
talking over it. There's nobody saying like, if you come to UMD, you can get blah, 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 blah. It's just all about the visuals and the music. And it's really a composer's dream because essentially we produce this really high quality music video for a piece of music that I wrote. Thinking of it as almost like a, a theme for the university is another example of a piece of music that utilizes the Lydian mode. The University of Minnesota's slogan is driven to discover. So I called the piece discovery in keeping with that slogan. Mixed in is the actual audio of recording these musicians outdoors. So sometimes you can hear the chirping of crickets and the sound of the wind blowing. That's all part of it. And it starts with this little what I call the warm-up, where you almost hear all the the players, they start to bubble together, and then finally the main theme sets in. So let's take a listen to Discovery. just so beautiful and I'm just I'm so excited about everything connected to this project in so many ways I just feel this is the heart and soul of you writ large in this grand kind of orchestration you know well, it's funny my friend Simon uh, who was actually one of the choristers in Antigone he he left a comment on the video and he said something about like it's the mix of Hyrule and Jurassic Park that nobody <laughs> knew that we needed um, and it was just it delighted me because oh, yeah there's definitely great. anybody that knows me knows that there is a influence of Koji Kondo and the Legend of Zelda and probably John Williams and film music and everything but uh, truthfully uh I actually wrote this theme the day that I found out about the assignment. I was so excited about it. I went into the practice rooms and I basically came up with the whole theme. It's this basic little tune that is continually modulating. That's sort of the form of it as it starts in this D major D Lydian sound and then it goes to B mixolydian and then it goes to this sort of F Lydian. And there's a lot of these, the idea is like kind of ever modulating, kind of moving forward because that seemed to be 
Well, I just I love know, it. It's, it's something it's about college and learning. It can't be stopped. Yeah, it's almost animated with, with thought and learning and the excitement of evolving and growing. And yeah, that central eight-note motif is just so wonderful. Just about every college has some kind of fight song, but you composed this uh, dream song, I guess. Thanks, man. Uh, that was, I was really so excited about it. Actually, this is a melody where the form and structure came inevitably, but the melody did take a little bit of whittling and I think this is something I've learned a lot from John Williams is the idea of gravity in that when you're writing a melody there needs to be momentum it's almost like it takes so much energy to get up but then inevitably it comes back down so when it's so beautifully balanced that jump down a fourth with just these pure two notes and then a busier series of notes taking smaller steps we've talked about that on the podcast too how the great melodies have this intervallic balance and this rhythmic balance and that's all here in those eight notes well thank you gosh very kind words i want to move on to uh, another piece of yours this is from a film that you worked on last year and i think this project was so great because it was kind of a, a testing of those things we were talking about earlier that a lot of scores now are really looking for something minimal but what i love about you marty is that you'll find yourself in a situation where you have to deliver on something that is maybe not necessarily your first instinct as a composer, but you still find a way to make it artful and beautiful. And I think this main title is such a gorgeous melody, even though it is so constrained by its own limitations. It's almost more beautiful because of it. Well, thanks so much, man. Uh, I don't know if I'll add much more to that. This was from a film titled Heart Wound, uh, directed by D. Wilmos Paul. And this is the main title, Daughter, Father, Son. strings open up (laughs) 
elegiacally playing it in octaves. Oh my gosh, that see, this is a perfect example. This is why there's a difference between the presentation of something and the heart of something. And this is why I'm so adamant that melody is the most important aspect of music. This is such a good melody. It's 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 simple, but again, not like simple to write. Simple, uh, simple to listen to. Uh, it, it's a beautiful progression that that's very similar to one that we've talked about before. Whether it's you know a, a one minor four or a half diminished two over sure, one, sure. that kind of Marion's theme or whatever the romantic yeah, sound. But here it's very minor tense, sixth in the harmony. Yeah. Uh, but presented so humbly on the piano like this, with lots of really interesting kind of modern. Uh, electronic production mixed in with it. But, you know, that theme could be, and that's what I was sort of joking about, is that could be a traditional symphonic orchestra theme. It's so romantic. It's every bit as as beautiful as, you know, the What Dangers and the in the Shadows melody. Um, I think it's just, uh, it's presented in such a different way. But that's what I applaud about it so much, is just with a piano, um, you're able to make that sound. And there's no flourish to this piece of music. It's all about the substance. And man, I mean, I, I was crying the first time I heard this. I oh, really gosh. thought it was just beautiful. I mean, oh, there's that idea. Yeah, da, da, is already so strong. Yeah, da, 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 which that kind of uh, suspension is, is something that you do so well where you'll, you'll leap into this moment of dissonance and savor it and kind of just step out of it. And then, yeah, da, da, da. when that happened, I was just like, because it's just these tiny steps, you know, that to me, this is how you write a great minimal melody, because it still has to be a melody. If it was just da, 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 you could just repeat that again and again. And I think right. that's the yeah, kind of thing that a lot of composers do. You don't want to just exploit, do. you know, pure chord tones or something. Right. And what I love about this is it still is a melody. It has shape and it's not lacking anything. Thanks so much, man. It's interesting because this is my second attempt at writing the, the main theme for the director and is any of us composing and collaborating with directors know it's really an interesting process and its own art, finding those ways to communicate. And he had been asking for something quite dark to represent the central character and his relationship with his estranged father. And what I was doing, it was almost not giving him the darkness he was looking for. And just kind of going on instinct, I actually ended up going in this direction that to me musically is actually much brighter and it starts rooted in this major tonality but then we get the darkness from the elements in the bottom of the orchestra and that low pedal and from juxtaposing that major tonality with as you say that that minor fourish sound or that diminished chord built on well it's more painful you know than just something being yeah. purely in minor i mean minor music can be fun it can be spooky and campy you know and it's like people often misunderstand the emotions of music and the the palette that of a composer is is often so much more complex and specific than you know major equals happy minor equals sad yeah. and it's the combination of all of that completely and yeah i think sometimes it can be an interesting exercise if you ever are finding that you're maybe having a bit of a challenge with that communication sometimes moving in the direction that's counter to the way that you sort of see music and the emotional expression of that music 
uh, sometimes that might open other other doors for you. It, you really do have to try everything. Well, I want to play a theme that I wrote from a film that I worked on last year as, I think, a very different tone than this. Yeah, we were working on both of these at the same time. It was really... Yeah, so. yeah. This was a, a fun, uh, independent film. It was a comedy, a little bit of a satire, satirical film. It was called Husband Insured, and it's about this woman whose husband passes away and her insurance company gives her a replacement husband. So it actually, it gave me a lot of excuses to do sort of a, a 90s John Debney-ish. It was sort of a, a dream project for me, actually, getting to do this kind of fun, you know, Home Alone meets John Debney kind of old-fashioned or orchestra thing, which was great. And you knocked it out of the park. I mean, and it's one of those cases where a score animates everything that's in the frame and just lifts up the, the caliber of every, you know, the performance and really kind of animates the humor, I would say, in most of these scenes as well. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, the the I'm going to be playing what I sort of consider the main theme from the score, and it actually comes from a, a scene when the characters are dancing, and it just sort of sounds like that sort of background source music sound, like they're dancing to this um, tango, habanera kind of background music, but that melody is actually used a little bit throughout the score, and it, it features uh, one of my good friends, Jacob, on trumpet. Um, it, it's kind of a more obvious pastiche type of a theme, but I, I'm happy with how it turned out, and hopefully it'll provide some contrast for today's episode. Let's take a listen to the theme from Husband Insured. theme from Husband Insured, composed by Will Brueggemann. You know, sometimes it's the comedy films, it's the satire that allow composers the broadest palette to really write music in and to celebrate some of the music of old that, for a variety of reasons, might get voted down in a more serious film. But I just adore the tango presentation here. Um, and your friend's trumpet playing is terrific. But uh, I was telling you that the material is just so good. It's such a strong theme. 
I'm just really moved by it. And I love that second presentation, you know, almost like a great romantic noir, like Chinatown. Chinatown, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just so beautiful. And, and once again, um, you know, a really strong melody can kind of go on the town and from neighborhood to neighborhood and keep its integrity and sometimes reveals kind of different aspects of itself in those different kinds of settings. And then I also love, if you're more familiar with the full score, there's a delightful little tease as that track faded out there. You really found an elegant way to weave in a variety of really strong melodies in this short, dude. Just, yeah, so good. Thanks, man. We're going to move on to another one of Marty's, and this was a really cool project that he put together of scoring a scene from an episode of Stranger Things, and he uh, put the video on on YouTube. It's become a a kind of a little popular thing, Uh, and what's really cool is Marty sort of scored it in the style of the 80s sort of adventure movies that the show was really inspired by. That score sort of... historically now um takes more of like a john carpenter approach using these synthesizers which is really cool yeah uh, but absolutely. so much of the show has this spielbergy quality to it that it almost seems to really demand like a john williams or a jerry goldsmith kind of score and i think marty did a wonderful job uh orchestrating this scene. So I definitely recommend that you guys check this out on YouTube. The piece of music he wrote is titled Strangers and Things. And again, we'll put a link to that video. This happens over a sequence in the first season where our heroes jump to their bikes and drive away from some dangerous men in vans. This kind of felt like ground zero for the sort of thing Will's talking about of maybe fusing some of the more Amblin Entertainment kind of musical palette that uh, some of us might connect with the material. And this is, I think, the first time uh, we're sharing this without any of the the sound effects or dialogue of the scene. Uh, Let's take a listen.
was Strangers and Things, a reimagined score by Marty. And it's funny, we're going to transition from one uh, <laughs> action cue and kind of an old-fashioned style to another. Yeah, it happens to work really well. So this is a, another piece from the film score to Husband Insured that Will wrote this past year. and But this is a wonderful scene towards the end of the film, and it's titled Joyce Takes Action. And it's just some terrific action music, a la Williams, a la Goldsmith. But there's some wonderful turns on a dime to match what's happening on screen. And we close with this beautiful lyrical theme as well. I was so blown away with the production and how you were able to make these virtual instruments sing. This is just terrific. Yeah, you'll hear a little bit of calling back to that theme from Husband Insured on uh, later on, but let's take a listen to <laughs> Joyce go. Takes Action.
gosh, just a stunning cue there. I just love it. Well, and even that clarinet melody is uh, another version of it, but it's kind of like a, a more John Williams E.T. film scoreified harmonization yeah, of that theme. And so that's kind of what I had fun with is taking that little um, source music cue and actually treating it as sort of the main theme because there's no really point in the score for another main theme. Right. The only other like real motive that keeps coming back is this yada-da-da-da-da. She sort of uses them for the the insurance company. company. Yeah, yeah. This kind of I almost imagine it was like something that would play in like an insurance commercial. But so it's like I I really wanted to have uh, some thematic development in the score. So I I kind of used that dance music to represent the the character of the husband. Well, it's great. Sometimes the almost subliminal ways we can plant some of these thematic ideas, and I love when there's an opportunity to sort of play with source music as score, that's maybe one of my favorite things when you get the opportunity. Well, we wanted to highlight uh, a a lot of different aspects of our composition because um, as we may have mentioned before, we're not just, film composers. We also are songwriters. And any of you that listen to Super Mercado Brothers, the video game music podcast, know that a huge avenue of our compositional output has to do with video game music, whether actually writing scores for original games or um, a lot of projects that you've done individually, I've done individually, and uh, you, Carl, and I have done collaboratively celebrating video game music, chiptunes, and things of that nature. So we're going to play a chiptune piece of music of yours made using Game Boy and NES for an album you released last year called Robo Girl. Yeah, this is the final villain, final boss stage. This is called Wicked Wicked Queen. And I was really excited by this project. And actually, the sequel to this album, Rebel Girl 2, will be out before the end of the year. As Will said, this was made using Game Boy and Nintendo technology and combining that programming together. This is Wicked Wicked Queen. I feel like I'm on the Super Mercado Brothers now playing this video game music, but oh, man, that final section. Dude, that's in my head so often. You have no idea how much that, like, that halftime groove with the really cool, like, I love that you're using DPCM NES samples of these, like, dubstep EDM drums. It's so awesome. And God, yeah, this is maybe one of my favorite tracks from Robo Girl. It was kind of a sleeper hit. The first time I, I heard it, I was like, oh, it's 
good, but it wasn't, you know, one that I felt like was my absolute favorite, because I think there were other ones where, like, the melodies stuck out to me right away. Sure, but sure. of all the tracks from that album, this is the one that's in my head the most, particularly that final section. Uh, it's so beautiful, and that's the thing that I love about Robo Girl is it's kind of this way of you to have a vehicle to just have this incredible outpouring of great melodies. And the fun thing about video game music is that they're kind of humbly presented. They're done with a groove and these little chiptune presentations and very unpretentious. But the thing is, writing a melody is difficult no matter what the the platform is. And I think the quality of the themes that you have here are every bit as beautiful as, you know, some finished orchestral thing or a, a beautiful, you know, acoustic song and that's the thing that I that's why we started the video game music podcast Carl and I is to kind of celebrate the music under the hood of so many video games that if you're just listening to the timbres and the sounds uh, you're not really being fair to the quality of the composition and I think that's something that uh, all three of us have been very inspired by and why we've written so much chiptune music ourselves yeah I think that's so true and also through the podcast the three of us have had some opportunities to speak with some of the game composers that have really shaped us and a couple of years ago we got to sit down and chat with Manami Matsumai who composed the original Mega Man and honestly it was that experience in a big way that inspired Robo Girl. We, we just love writing, thinking, dreaming, and, and playing in that world. You know, I think one of the deepest wells of beautiful video game music is music composed for the Super Nintendo. Fans of Super Nintendo music probably can recall a lot of great, let's say, RPG music, as well as platformers, shooters, really um, games of all genres uh, were supported by some outstanding music in the Super Nintendo era. Will in particular, I think has been really fascinated in the last couple of years of kind of composing with that palette, with that Super Nintendo palette. We're next going to listen to a piece titled In Days of Old that in many ways celebrates that rich, melancholy, and beautiful music of the Super Nintendo. But it sports really one of my favorite Will Brueggemann melodies. I just love where you take this. And you remember where I wrote this, don't you? I do, yeah. It was actually at the studio. So It was at Marty's studio, Honeytone. On our upright piano there. Um, And yeah, Patrick and I, I think, were troubleshooting some gear or something as you were playing this, and I couldn't concentrate. I had to come over and. Well, I don't have experiences like this often. I remember you've talked about this with certain songs where you'd be walking and it just comes to you, but I literally, I was walking from the live room to the control room and just this melody in my head da 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 it was just like in my head fully and I just I ran to the piano and tried to figure it <laughs> yeah. out I've never I've never had that happen to me I mean there have been melodies that just sort of fall in your lap but never just like in my head like I'm not even singing it's just there well, it's, that, it's that great too because then you always are trying to match the key that's in your head and sometimes it might not be a key that you jump to maybe immediately when composing <laughs> at the piano. Yeah, I think that was the case with this. I don't remember what this might be in it's either D minor or A Dorian or something. Well, it is beautiful, and this is available on an album um, on the Super Mercado Brothers Bandcamp of the same name in days of old, and it combines pieces in the Super Nintendo palette from both Will and Carl. 
I think one of my greatest achievements for this is that when I played it to our dad, he he loved it because he it kind of sounds a little bit like a Western yeah. type of Ennio Morricone thing. And I remember he he has sort of a derisive opinion about video games, and so it's always or like a backhanded music, yeah it. backhanded compliment if you write a piece of game music that's really good. He's like, oh, this is too good for video music. <laughs> yeah. So that was memory. Yeah, and this is definitely too good for video music. Let's take a listen. Something that you and Carl talk about on the Supermarketer Brothers podcast a lot is that the experience of nostalgia with music isn't limited to pieces you have an association with from childhood, that there is an actual musical, harmonic, melodic expression of nostalgia. I definitely think that's here in this piece in the best possible way. Uh, we've been talking about that primary melody, but the sort of spotlit melody with the kind of harp and piano sounds that to me evoke everything I love about Joe Hisashi's score to Princess Mononoke. It's like, oh, that's just, yeah, it's a, a stunning moment. And, yeah, uh, it's, it's funny. Out, out of any composer, he's someone that has just influenced me so so much and it's like it's not always intentional but i'll just find myself in these places and you just become attracted to that sort of sound but he's one of those composers where it's just the epitome of beautiful melody beautiful harmony so accessible but it has this classical 
not erudite, but there's just this sophistication to it that I, I just no, so absolutely. admire. And it's like everything that I would want to embody as a composer is that you could do something beautiful, accessible, universal, anyone could appreciate it, but it's not in the close of like a pop song. It's in the close of classical concert music. And I think that's one of the things I love about film and video games is that you have this music that is so accessible, but it's also beautiful and maybe has sophistication to it right. and i think right. anything that i do whether it is in films or games or concert music i think that's typically a goal that i have is i, I want it to be something that just about anybody could engage with that's beautiful my good friend meng who has been living in china for the last several years recently got to see a joe concert where he was conducting and actually was even piano playing conducting for a few pieces including the theme that that we call Sheeta's decision from Castle in the Sky which was i think for everyone in our family and for Meng and I it's a uh, a really important piece of music and he was sending some iPhone videos of the concert yeah there's nothing quite like Joe and what he does just so beautiful well let's move on to uh, a really delightful piece by Marty we actually played in with this on our Halloween episode uh, it's a piece of production music that Marty composed for a music library. It's called Sneaky Sneaky, and it embodies sort of all of the devious qualities that you'd love in uh, you know films like Home Alone or honestly just a lot of production music. This is sort of a genre or style that I feel like crops up a lot, and I think you did a wonderful job with the implementation here. The melody is great. This is just so much fun. I absolutely adore this next piece of music. Sneaky, sneaky.
like Will said, that was composed for a music library. And anyone that's composing for libraries knows that uh, sometimes you're working within pretty interesting constraints. Usually that involves hitting certain timing markers. So this piece had to be pretty much exactly <laughs> two minutes. And from it, you also need to be able to produce a 15-second sting, a 30-second sting, and that sort of thing. Oftentimes, that kind of constrains maybe the tempos available to you that you're working in. Or sometimes you have to find interesting kind of structural solutions to kind of working within that time limit. But this was a lot of fun. and Well, and it's a piece of music that's perfect for a production library like that. And it's wonderful that this kind of music exists in our popular culture at all. And I think, you know, shows like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and, you know, comedians in cars getting coffee. There's all these shows that use this kind of stock music sound, which is actually great. Yeah, totally. The sort of background music genre is is one that i know both of us are actually yeah, big absolutely. fans of yeah there's some of our favorite kind of old school orchestrations and some of that great production music so i went back and forth about playing this next little excerpt because it is outside of the realm of film music but it is in the realm of musical storytelling it was kind of a, a big experience in my life that i wanted to share something for a year and a half ago i composed a, a one act chamber opera based on a folk tale that was written about by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow called Aseo, Son of the Evening Star, and it was staged last December. And I wanted to play just sort of an excerpt of the first scene of the opera. It hopefully provides maybe a, a different side of my compositional style, but anyone that knows me will definitely hear the influence of, you know, video game music and film music and all of these things and songwriting. When I was working on the opera, I knew that we wouldn't be able to have a full orchestra accompanying it, but I knew that we could have sort of a little chamber group. So since it is sort of this fairy tale in kind of a woodland setting, I decided to opt for almost like the sound of a woodwind quintet, except it's flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, trumpet, not French horn. And then there's a percussionist who is playing everything from pitch percussion to cymbals, all manner of whimsical instruments. And there is a piano as well. It was a great limitation, though, because I think working on the opera gave me such an appreciation for every single one of those woodwind timbres. Right. Uh, it's something that definitely transformed my life in a in a big way. So I wanted to play an excerpt from scene one from Oseo, Son of the Evening Star. Well, I'm so glad because I would not to embarrass you, but I would say to date, this is uh, what I would consider the William Brueggemann magnum opus. Let's listen to scene one from Oseo. <laughs> Thank you. 
very favorite musical memory is sitting in the audience just such a magical experience it's not only that you composed the music you wrote everything you hear the libretto every lyric every piece of orchestration and you even played a small role in this <laughs> when everything is independently done you kind of have to take every role but also yeah, i think absolutely. when you're really fastidious about music or visual art or filmmaking i think sometimes there is this tendency to want to control every aspect of it hopefully um i wasn't overly controlling in the production of it i had to write the whole thing in one summer so i just didn't have the time to find a collaborator and i didn't want to work with someone who hadn't done it before and there wasn't really a pre-existing text that i could draw from and i think i also have a very particular standard for a melody and I didn't want even though this was an opera and for a lyric as well. Yeah, I, I didn't want to just abandon those philosophies that I have. So I ended up kind of surrendering to doing it all myself. It, it wouldn't have been my first choice, but it was just one of those things where I, I didn't feel that I had another real option. But it ended up sure. being so much better that way because even though it was so much stress and so much work when it was done, I felt this incredible sense of pride because I would hold the score in my hand and just be like, wow, I made this whole thing. And then you get to see it staged and there's these characters that you created and you wrote every word of text that they're singing and all the it's it's such an incredible feeling you know and i'd written music for orchestras before but there's something about telling a story with music and marty i know you know this from having written musicals that feeling of storytelling i think really became illuminated in me when i was working on oseo that sure. that really is the ultimate goal of any artist is to be a storyteller and i it's very much transformed the way that i see my role as a composer it's a narrative art form. It isn't just completely isolated from that. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a great experience that I will treasure forever. And I'm very proud of the music and I hope that it would get staged again. The version that we're hearing right now is actually the full filmed production it is on YouTube and it's also available on my website um, if anyone is interested. But yeah, I kind of wanted to share a little excerpt because it's something that is meaningful to me. And me too, and really to anyone that got to be in attendance. I love what you're saying about the essence of any artistic pursuit is really clear and beautiful storytelling. Oh. 
We're next going to listen to a piece, the end credits from the short film Heart Wound that I composed this year. This follows the strongest musical cadence in the film. Our characters drive off into the sunset and into what hopefully to the audience feels like a quite happy ending. And then as we cut to black, we're brought down to just this uh, solo piano who's reprising a couple of the musical ideas from the film. This is called Exit from Heart Wound. tell you that i love that theme because i freaking <laughs> love that theme it's so good it just man it really speaks to me i i i can't get enough of it and it, it's i know that it's very elemental and i mean when you were first describing it in your experience working on the film you were so downplaying it like it was just barely even a theme and yet you i don't know it, it's so beautiful and uh, heartfelt yeah. uh, you tend to do that a lot you undersell yourself and uh, you're absolutely one of my favorite composers uh and i won't let you edit that out (laughs) okay well ditto in a big way and yeah that's not edited out either well i think before we overstay our welcome yeah we're getting towards the end here yeah so uh this is going to be the last piece of music of mine that we're going to play today um and i think the last piece that we're i guess going to discuss uh, but I don't really have a lot to say about this. I wanted to share a choral piece of mine because that's a big part of my output as a composer. You know, I am a singer and I've always sung in choirs and choral music is um, something that I very much love. And this is a piece that I wrote in my senior year of college with that kind of feeling of nostalgic, you know, last day of school, pack up the lockers kind of a thing. And this is also an yeah. original text. A lot of times when I write choral music, you know, you're setting um, pre-existing poem. Uh, but this was one where the musical idea actually started to come first and the words came out of that. Um, and I think it, it definitely captures a, a feeling that I have about a period of my life. And honestly, I, I think out of any piece I've ever written, this is the one that I almost feel the strongest emotional attachment to. And I can't really explain why, but it speaks something about um, a feeling that I've had throughout a lot of my life. So hopefully that's not too much sentimental hogwash (laughs) in the words of (laughs) Mr. Mr. Potter Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Sentimental hogwash. This is beautiful. And we'll actually have this take us out on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening today, this year, and throughout the history of the podcast. 
wherever you are and whatever you might be celebrating, happy holidays. You can find links to all of the music that we've played today in the show notes and on our websites, respectively, williambmusic.com and martybmusic.com. We each have band camps and uh, a lot of the video game stuff that we've played can be found on supermarcadobros.com and you can find links to all of that below. Have a wonderful day, everyone. This is Send You On by Will Brueggemann. Until next time, take care. Our show is made possible thanks to our generous patrons, including Jean-David Blanc, Travis Anderson, Richard Welch, Jackie Brueggemann, 
Josh Lucan, Charlie McCarran, Kevin Wang, Jordan Kolosinski, Carlos, Alex Death, Benji Inniger, Desmond Clark, BJ Crawford, Simon Parker, and David Liu. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.